great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Amen. Yesterday we asked our boys to summarize a movie that they had watched. Well, it was rather painful. They are just so incredibly detailed that it's not even funny. And so, of course, this became a teaching opportunity where we got to try and help our boys understand the difference between a big picture summary and a meticulous detailed explanation, an overview of the whole story. Today, we begin a sequential exposition through Genesis. However, I'd like to begin by providing a big picture overview, a summary of Genesis, a bird's eye view as we fly over this book. But like my sons, I tend to be too detailed. So please bear with me. This is going to be very difficult for me. I'll try my best not to dig into all the nitty gritty but keep it big picture. So let's begin by zooming out even further. Let's consider the Bible as a whole. If you were to bump into someone and such a person were to ask you, what is the Bible about? How might you answer? What would you say? Um, the Bible's about Jesus. No, salvation. No, it's about relationship to God. It's not an easy question, is it? Scholars have long debated this. And that's because the Bible is a unity. It has a common author, a very clear storyline, but it is also too rich and too complex to be simply reduced to a simple sentence. It consists of multiple themes, multiple purposes, multiple connections. The Bible is one book made up of 66 books, 39 Old Testament books, and 27 New Testament books. And each book has a unique setting, a unique background, and a specific purpose. The books were written by different authors at different times, in different places, and yet all these 66 books are brought together in one volume. The events it speaks about stretch from eternity past all the way through to eternity future. The events are detailed, and yet there are many major events that string this whole story together. It was written by roughly 40 different authors from vastly different social and cultural backgrounds. Having been written over a period of roughly 1,500 years, written in three languages, and yet all these events, all these themes point to God's glory, to man's redemption, and to one central figure, Jesus Christ. Well, let's zoom in one step closer. What would you say is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? You may say the Old Testament is the history of Israel, and the New Testament is the history of the church. Or you might say the Old Testament shows, shows us our need for a Savior, whereas the New Testament shows us that Jesus Christ is the Savior who we need. All these answers would be true. The Bible is one big story which begins in eternity past, and extends to eternity future. And like any story, there are a number of events that are placed along the way. So what are are some of the major events that took place in the Old Testament? Creation, the fall, the flood, and then the dispersion of the nations. The calling of Abraham. Moses and the Exodus, the promised land, David and the kings, a divided nation, 
the exiles, foreigner as king. Those are some of the major events that took place in the Old Testament. Creation, the fall, and the flood, although those are major events in world history, they're only covered in 11 chapters of our Bibles, which is not even half of the size of Genesis. The major events in Israel's history can be divided into four major periods. Firstly, God as originator. He is the creator. God as king. And then Israelite as king. They rejected God as king and they chose one of their own to be their king like the other nations. And then fourth and finally, a foreigner as king in their rebellion. If we place these four events on a timeline, for simplicity, we could divide the timeline in blocks of 500 years. Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, Jesus. 2,000 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ, we have Abraham. So Abraham was 2,000 B.C. Jesus, let's say, 0 B.C. You and I, we 2,000 A.D. So we have Abraham, who's introduced in Genesis 12, the period of history being 2000 BC. So that's 4,000 years ago. And then Moses was 1,500 BC, so 500 years after Abraham. And then David was 1,000 BC, so 500 years further. And then you have Daniel, 500 BC, and then the period of the silence, where Scripture wasn't being revealed and written. And then after those 500 years of silence, we have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, bursting on the scene. The first five books of the Old Testament, if we zoom in a bit closer, they are the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is penta, meaning five, like the Pentagon, but a lot more bulletproof than that. These five books, these Jewish books, are referred to as the Torah which is often translated as the teachings or the law, the instruction. Whenever you study Scripture, you need to first establish the genre, the what kind of literature are we dealing with. The Pentateuch is a historical narrative, historical narrative, which means that it is a story grounded in history. The Pentateuch is also a theological narrative, meaning that it is a story that teaches us about God, about Theo. And since it is a narrative, a story has a plot. Every story has a plot. The scene is set. There's a problem that's introduced, a conflict or a crisis of some sort. And then the problem is further developed. The solution is hinted at. And then finally, the problem is resolved, and they all live happily ever after the end. Well, Genesis is set in a story. The scene is set. God created man to have fellowship and dominion with him in the garden. And yet, both are lost at the, flo- at the fall. The problem is developed. Sin spreads. The flood destroys. The, 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 the solution is hinted at, even at the fall. The seed of a woman, a redeemer, will provide Redemption, salvation. The solution is then further developed in the covenant promise to Abraham, to his family. A promise of land, people, descendants, offspring, a nation, and then blessing to all the nations. Another feature of a narrative are the characters or the character development. Who are some of the main characters We've got Abraham, who was a childless nobody from Ur of the Chaldeans, who became a father of many nations. We have Jacob from being a lying schemer to becoming Israel, the father of the nation. But remember, as we look at all these characters throughout Scripture, the main character of a narrative is always God. He is the, the hero of the story. The human characters really serve as foils to highlight the character and the promises of God. 
The characters are shown to have strengths as well as weaknesses and many, many failings. And yet God is faithful. He is faithful in working through them and really despite them. Another feature of a narrative is selectivity, the selection of material, the number of pages devoted to a particular event or period of history. And that doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, the amount of pages doesn't necessarily affect, reflect the duration of the period or the event. For example, the first six chapters of the Bible, they cover a period of roughly 2,000 years from Adam through to Noah. The next six chapters, they only cover about 500 years from Noah to Abraham. And yet, the the next 38 chapters of Genesis, they cover only 200 years from Abraham through to Joseph. The first six chapters, 2,000 years, it's almost like watching a movie at 10 times speed. Heaven and earth created, the entire earth populated, entire earth destroyed, with the exception, of course, of Noah and his family, the eight of them. Then the entire earth repopulated, and you have nations rising, and you have nations falling. You have languages spreading across the globe. And then we get to chapter 12, and it's like the camera slows down, and it continues to record, but in slow motion. And the camera focuses in on one man, Abraham. One man whom God chooses of all the people on the earth. One man and his descendants, one family line, and then this insignificant community of Hebrew slaves. Every story, of course, has an author, and the author of the Pentateuch, the author of Genesis, is Moses. Moses is God's appointed prophet who receives direct revelation from God and who pens the Pentateuch and this book, Genesis, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote these five books, and then he placed them in the Ark of the Covenant, which was stored in the Holy of Holies. It set his work apart as divine scripture, apart from the other works of the day. Genesis is the first of the books of Moses. And Moses wrote Genesis sometime after the Exodus in 1445 B.C., but of course before his death which was in 1405 B.C. Today, I'll endeavor to paint a big picture, an overview of the book of Genesis. And in so doing, we'll strive to to answer three questions. The first question is, why did Moses write Genesis? Why did Moses write Genesis? If you want to call this first point, you could call it perhaps the design, really referring to the purpose, the the design. The second question that we'll strive to answer is, how did Moses structure Genesis? How did Moses structure this teaching? And we could perhaps call the second point the demarcation. So we've got the design and then the demarcation. And then third and finally, we'll strive to answer the question, why does What does Genesis teach us about God and about his plan of redemption? What what does Genesis teach us about God and his plan of redemption? And we could call this final point the divine. So the design, the demarcation, and the divine. So let's dive in. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. If you reach Revelation, you've gone too far. Just turn back a few chapters. Open your Bibles to the first book of God's holy word, Genesis. Whenever you study a book of the Bible, you always want to establish what is the purpose for which it was written. What was the author's reason for writing this book? What is his purpose, his goal, his thesis, his proposition? Why did Moses write Genesis? We're calling this first point the design. If you look at the title, the title says Genesis, which is from the Hebrew word Bereshit, 
which is really translated in beginning, in the beginning. And as you look at the first three words in your Bible, it says, in the beginning. And so the title and the first words of the book, they correspond. They're identical. And this is a common practice. We see this in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and so forth. Moses wrote Genesis. The reason why he wrote Genesis is to explain the origin and the early history of the universe and mankind. So that, remember our proposition, so that you will know and worship the Lord who has no beginning and no end. Genesis is a timeless narrative. It is a theological narrative, a teaching of God, a revelation of God. It is historical. It is set in a sure, it provides a sure record of history. Henry Morris says that Genesis is an unembellished chronological record of our world. It is indeed a book of beginnings. The book of Genesis is the source of the Christian belief system. It's foundational to Christianity. In many respects, the book of Genesis is the most important book of the Bible because it answers, not exhaustively, but certainly sufficiently, the fundamental question of the human mind. The book of Genesis chronicles or explains the origin and the early history of the universe, the human race, of sin and depravity, of tribes and languages, of the nation of Israel to whom Moses is writing, of God's promises of blessings and his promises of redemption, which of course is accomplished through the seed of the woman, the Messiah, who will be Jesus Christ, God himself. And this theme of redemption is then developed alongside God's judgment. The Bible as a whole is like a chain, a chain that hangs on two staples. The book of Genesis is one of those staples, and the book of Revelation is the other. And if those two staples were to be displaced, the chain would fall into chaos, into a bit of a mess. We wouldn't be able to place, keep it in, in place. And so if the first chapter of Genesis were to be removed, then the revelation of the beginning of the universe or the origin of race, or the reason for redemption, they would be gone. Likewise, if the last chapters of Revelation were somewhat lost or removed, the consummation of all things would be unknown. So if you take away Genesis, you've lost the explanation of the first heaven, the first earth, the first Adam, the fall. And if you take away Revelation, you've lost the explanation of the new heaven, the new earth, the redeemed, the second Adam, paradise regained. Furthermore, in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, you find the foundational doctrines of Christianity, the kingdom of God, anthropology, the, the study of man, harmatiology, the doctrine pertaining to sin, Soteriology, the teaching referring to regarding salvation. Theology proper, the doctrine of God. We'll see many of his perfections unfolded in this book. Even the Trinity. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Angel, angel, angelology, oh, that's a tongue twister. The doctrine pertaining to angels and even fallen angels, Satan himself. We all find that in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we learn about the Lord's Day, the unity of race, the establishment of marriage between one man and one woman, gender and the unique gender distinction roles, the, the, the unique, distinct, God-glorifying roles between men and women, God's design for the family, parenting, even work. It's all clearly explained and revealed and taught in Genesis as the foundation. Genesis, thus, is no doubt the foundation of our faith. It's a book about beginnings. Everything has a beginning. 
except God. He has no beginning. He is the uncreated one. God transcends all beginnings. There is no Genesis Theu or Theogony or no Theobiography in the first book of the Bible. And that's because God is without Reshit, without beginning, and without Aharit, without end. The Bible merely assumes His existence, His eternality, His transcendence. Take a look at verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created. It doesn't introduce who He is or how He came about. He just is. God is the self-existent one. He is the sovereign creator and owner of everything. Which means that He sets apart. He is, he is set apart. He is distinct from. He alone is God. He is separated from everything created. Set, set apart from His creation. Set apart from the false gods of our world. He alone is God. Man is not. We are dust. And to dust we shall return. We are here today, but we're gone tomorrow. God, God is eternal. He has no beginning, and He has no end. When Moses crafted, when he wrote this masterful piece, the nations around him were worshipping a whole plethora of gods, false gods. They worshipped the light. They worshipped darkness. They worshipped the sun and the moon. They worshipped the waters below and the waters above. They worshipped the sea and the rain. Sea creatures. Animals that roamed the earth. Birds that flew in the sky. They worshipped. They worshipped everything but God. But God in His mercy intervened. And he spoke through his servant Moses. And he revealed himself as the one and only true God who is to be worshipped. Similarly, today, the world around us worships a whole array of gods. Money, sex, power, tradition. But unlike the lost in Moses' day, the lost in our day, they don't refer to such things as idols, they don't recognize their polytheism, their worship of multiple gods. Praise the Lord for Genesis. There are a few books in the scriptures that demarcate the individual units of thought as clearly as Genesis does. And this leads us to the second point, which we could call the demarcation. The demarcation. It's the question that we're striving to answer how is it that Moses structured Genesis? How did he structure this teaching? And there are several ways that you could divide Genesis. One of the ways is by dividing it by the ten units of thought, which are all preceded by the phrase, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. And as you read Genesis, you'll see that that phrase is repeated ten times. The book of Genesis describes and records the beginnings, the generations of, the beginnings of. So turn over to chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, you read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. And then this is followed by the creation account, even preceded by and followed by the creation account. Man is regarded as the offspring of the heaven and the earth, much like Seth is regarded the offspring of Adam and Abraham, the offspring of Terah. And yet in Genesis chapter 1, although the phrase is not seen in chapter 1, these are the generations of, it just simply states that Adam and Eve were created in the likeness of God, a divine image, a divine likeness. So you could say, in some respects, these are the generations of God is implied. After all, as we look in the Old Testament, you'll see that very often, especially kings, but others, are referred to as sons of God. Although the first mention of that phrase appears in chapter 6, and those sons of God is in reference to those who are in bondage to their unrestrained lust, which results in even the flood thereafter. 
So these are the generations of versus the generations of the heavens and the earth. They are complementary. And you could say that the first describes humanity's divine origin, divine endowments, whilst the second describes humanity's mundane origin. Take a look at Genesis 5, verse 1. We see the, the second phrase. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. And then what follows is Adam's genealogy, a ten-generation genealogy from Adam through to Noah. And it ends with Noah fathering Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Take a look at Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. He found favor with God. And what we read in the next chapters is that the flood follows. Destroying the rest of the population. Except for Noah and his family of eight. Take a look at Genesis chapter 10 verse 1. Genesis 10 verse 1. Now these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. So this is followed by the descendants of Noah. And these generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons, and then their sons. And then as you take a look at Genesis 11, verse 10, it says, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Achpachshad two years after the flood. This is then followed by Shem's genealogy. And it's also a 10-generation genealogy from Shem all the way through to Abraham, which ends with Terah, Abraham's father, fathering three sons, Abram, who becomes Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And so really, both the genealogy of Adam, which we saw in Genesis 5, ends with an individual father fathering three sons, three children. In Genesis 5, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here in Genesis 11, we have Terah fathering Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And the significance of this we will look at, we'll dig into. Look down at verse 27 of chapter 11. Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And this is followed by the Abraham story, which picks up in chapter 12. Turn to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, verse 12. Genesis 25, verse 12 says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant woman, bore to Abraham. And this is followed by Ishmael's descendants, his 12 descendants. Look down at verse 19, 25, 19. Now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And this has followed the Jacob story. Turn to Genesis 36, verse 1. Genesis 36, verse 1. Now, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. And then verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And this is the genealogy of Esau, Esau's family tree. And then finally, Genesis 37, verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph was 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. And of course, what follows from Genesis 37 through to the end is the story of Joseph. Judah, of course, features there as well. 
So this is one way that you can track or divide, you know, follow the flow of the book, is by these ten, these are the generations of. But you could also divide the book of Genesis into a three-part division, which is a geographical design. Each part of the Mediterranean world is highlighted in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11, the setting is Babylonia. Babylonia. In Genesis 12 through to 36, the setting is Palestine. Whereas Genesis 37 through to 50, that is set in Egypt. So we can either divide Genesis based on the ten generations of phrase, or we could divide it based on the three geographical designs, Babylonia, Philistine, and Egypt. Or perhaps the third and probably the simplest way that we could divide the book of Genesis is into two parts. There's a very, very clear division between chapters 11 and chapters 12. I don't think any can argue the division. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 describes the primitive or the primeval history, whereas Genesis 12 through to 50 describes the patriarchal history. In the first 11 chapters, we are introduced to individuals who had land but are either losing it or they're about to be expelled from it. But in chapters 12 through to 50, the emphasis is on individuals who do not have land, but they are on their way toward that land. So one group is losing, the other is expecting. Genesis 1 through to 11 presents a series of sorry examples, really poor examples. And thus when we get to the patriarchal history, in Genesis 12 and onwards, we're expecting to find a solution to this problem, the, the problem that we've seen in the first 11 chapters. And when we get to chapter 12, we're asking, will there be more Adams? Will there be more tower builders? Or is there a way out of this di dilemma? And then, of course, we introduce to Abraham in chapter 12 who is contrasted with all these sorry examples who have preceded him. Abraham is not intent on making his own name great. Rather, he is the one upon whom greatness is bestowed. Genesis 1 through 11 describes the primitive history. And you could divide that up into four key events. Creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations. Can you say it with me? Creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations. Those are the four key events that you could divide up the first 11 chapters of Genesis into. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see the creation account, with man being created in the image of God. In chapter 1, we see God created the world and everything in it in six literal days. Day 1, there was light. Day two, sky and water. Day three, seas, land and vegetation. Day four, stars, sun and moon. Day five, fish and birds. Day six, the beasts of the earth, the animals of the earth and man. The next event is the fall. And which chapter of Genesis do we read about the fall? Chapter? Three, Genesis chapter three, the fall of man. And then we have the flood, as well as the Noahic covenant, which we see in Genesis six through nine, the flood. And then fourth and finally, in Genesis 11, the nations, or, or rather the building of the Tower of Babel resulting in the division, the spreading of the nations through the confusion of the languages. So that's, the, that's really an overview of the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. The second part is found in Genesis 12 through 50, and Genesis 12 through 50 describes the history of the patriarchs. And like Genesis 1 through 11, which can be divided into four key events, 
Genesis 12 through 50 can be divided into four, into four key people, four key persons. These are the four patriarchs. Who are the four patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In Genesis 12 through to chapter 24, that describes the story of Abraham. And within those chapters, we also see the Abrahamic covenant. The life of Isaac is described in two chapters, which is Genesis 25 and 26. The Jacob story is found in Genesis 27 through to 36. And then finally, probably the most well-known of all, is the prince of Egypt. The story of Joseph, recorded in Genesis 37 through 50. A little spoiler alert, Judah is a major, major feature there too, but we'll get there. And what's so incredibly fascinating of Genesis 12 through 50 is that it describes the history of just four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the majority of Genesis, the majority of the pages devoted in Genesis is devoted to a period of only 200 years as opposed to the thousands that preceded. And whilst the, four, whilst the 11 chapters, that describes 20 generations, from Adam to Abraham, which is a period of 2,500 years. Why the dis disproportion? We could also ask, why is creation, which is such an indispensable part of life, of Scripture, of Genesis, why is it only given two chapters? while Abraham is allotted 13 chapters. Why is the fall, which is so significant, why is it limited to one chapter, chapter 3? While Joseph, it occupies the last third of Genesis. The answer to these questions will be made more clear as we work through this book together. But perhaps the most important question we should be asking is what does Genesis teach us about God? What does Genesis teach us about God and His plan of redemption? And this leads us to the third and final question that we'll seek to answer. What does Genesis teach us about God and His plan of redemption? And we're calling this third point the divine, the purpose of the book, the well, we've seen the design, which was the purpose of the book. We've seen the demarcation, which is the structure of the book. And now we're going to look at the divine, the, the theo, the God, that this book teaches us about. What is the theology of Genesis? In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God is presented as the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth and everything on it. He made men and women for an eternal relationship with Him, to oversee His creation and to propagate, to fill the earth. And even though they were created perfect, they sinned, and they introduced sin into this world, resulting in them being banished from the garden, banished from the presence of Yahweh, resulting in God cursing the ground, and sin and death spreading to all mankind. The relationship with God that we were created to enjoy was ruined, separated by sin. We were cut off from God, united with His greatest enemy, the devil. But God didn't leave us in that miserable and hopeless state. To restore creation back to His intended purpose, God promised a Redeemer. And the book of Genesis develops this theme of redemption alongside God's judgment. And this Redeemer is going to come through a specific people group. He is going to come through the nation of Israel. In Genesis 12 through 50, we see the origin of Israel, which traces their roots back to Abraham, Eber, and Shem. We see that God accomplishes His plan of redemption through a nation. And the covenant that he made with Abraham, a promise of land, seed, and blessing. Covenants are central to God's plan. In Genesis 8 and 9, God enters into a covenant with 
humanity, with creation, the Noahic covenant, the sign being the rainbow. In Genesis 12, he enters into a covenant with a family, the Abrahamic covenant. And really what's so remarkable about these three men, this father, son, and grandson, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that these first three generations, this family who have been chosen by God, who have been promised land and descendants, who have been chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations around them, what's so remarkable is that their election, God's selection of this family, His selection of these individuals is most certainly not based upon any merits of their own. They are chosen not because they are good. They are chosen based on God's sovereign will alone. Even though they are guilty of highly unethical behavior, God remains true to his promises. On two occasions, Abraham encourages his wife to lie about her identity, putting her in a dangerous position. In fact, making her an adulteress. At his wife's suggestion, Abraham commits adultery with another woman. Later, when Isaac is found to be an alien, a sojourner on foreign soil, he imitates his father's deception. Jacob exploits his brother, deceives his father, and even after his spiritual transformation and renaming, he still lies to his brother, Esau. This is sounding a lot like the church. Judah has twin daughters, has twins with his daughter-in-law. Judah has twins with his daughter-in-law who disguises herself as a harlot. And the interesting thing about all these examples of sinful behavior is that God doesn't ever explicitly rebuke any of the patriarchs He doesn't send a Nathan-type prophet condemning them, saying, you are that man. The closest he comes to a rebuke is asking Abraham regarding Sarah, why did Sarah laugh? So there's the question, why did Sarah laugh? But not the question, why did Abraham lie? Or why did Jacob deceive? What's going on here? Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't receive consequences for their sin, there are several places in Genesis where God does hold individuals accountable. Adam and Eve, they were driven out the Garden of Eden, driven away from the presence of Yahweh because of their disobedience. Cain was made a wanderer and a refugee for killing Abel. The entire human race, except for Noah and his family, were destroyed by a great flood. The languages were confused at the Tower of Babel, bringing the building project to a swift halt. And all of this is in Genesis 3 through 11. As commentator Victor Hamilton says, it is quite clear that one cannot sin with impunity or immunity. And whilst the sin of Abraham in Genesis 12 seems to be ignored in the biblical account, Pharaoh's inadvertent sin in taking Sarah is met with plagues. In Genesis 20, Yahweh closes the womb of the woman in Abimelech's house because Abimelech took Sarah to be his own wife, took her away from Abraham. The sin which will not go unpunished is the sins of those outside of the chosen family. God enters into a relationship with Abraham and his family, who received favor from Yahweh. However, this was not the case for the Egyptians or the Philistines. And when these other nations sinned against God's chosen people, they were punished severely. They were even punished for sins that they committed in ignorance. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 verse 3, says, The one who curses you, I will curse. And so taking Abraham's wife, Sarah, was viewed as a sin against Abraham, and thus provoked divine rebuke. It is clear, as one commentator writes, 
Genesis is not interested in parading Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as examples of morality. What Genesis 12 through 50 is doing is bringing together the promise of God to the patriarchs and the faithfulness of God in keeping those promises. Even if the bearers of those promises represent the greatest threat to the promises, the individual lives of the promise bearers cannot abort those promises, end quote. In other words, despite their faithlessness, God remains faithful. Genesis teaches us about the faithfulness of God. He is faithful to His promise. He promised Abraham and his family His divine presence, land, descendants, and blessings through them to the other nations. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see generations of. We see beginnings, origins. Genesis 3, we see degeneration, the undoing of, the reversal of creation. Genesis 12 onwards, we begin to see regeneration, salvation. Yahweh's faithfulness to Israel is grounded in His free, sovereign pleasure to enter into covenant with them, to make them his own people, a people for himself. And even though they sinned in many ways, their righteousness was never ever the basis for God's election of them. And because of that, their failures would never cause him to leave them or forsake them. And dear friends, I hope that you can see how this applies to you and me. How reassuring this is for us. For us as New Testament believers, just as God entered into a covenant with Israel, owing them nothing, based entirely on His own sovereign pleasure, He has united you and me to His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith, by grace, through faith. And He has grafted us into the rich olive tree of the new covenant, new covenant blessings. And even when we sin grievously, We sin grievously far too often. Even when we act as if we haven't been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Even if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Matthew Henry writes, Had He chosen us for our good merits, we might fear He would cast us off for our bad merits. But choosing us for His namesake, for His namesake, He will not leave us. The great assurance we have in Christ is that for all believers of any age, we who are in a covenant-bound relationship with Yahweh, we have great assurance that whatever we may or may not do, He will remain faithful to His promise. Our hope rests securely In God's faithful character. When Adam ate the fruit, their eyes were opened. They saw their nakedness. They were ashamed and they covered themselves. When Adam heard God walking in the garden, he ran away and tried to hide himself in his shame. Don't we do the very same thing? When we've blown it again. Our natural response is to turn and hide from God and God's people in shame. Our natural response is to continue wallowing in the sorrow of our sin. But God commands us to run to Him. And do you know why? Because the basis of your acceptance is not your faithfulness to Him. It is His faithfulness to His Word. Another reason why you should run to Him is because there's nowhere else to go. Seriously, where would you go? Who else can forgive your sins? Who else can deliver you? Who else can save? Who else can make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy? Nobody else. This is God's covenant faithfulness. He is faithful. Faithful to Himself and faithful to His promises, and faithful to His people. May this reality compel your faithfulness 
to Him as you walk by faith in Jesus Christ. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We will bless you, O Yahweh, at all times. We will praise you. Our, the praise of you will continue to be on our lips for all eternity. Our soul makes its boast in you, O Yahweh, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, it is our joy to magnify your name together with the saints at Livingstone Bible Church. We delight to exalt your name together. Father, we thank you that we are no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. We are being built up by your Spirit and your Word into the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the living stone, the chief cornerstone, in whom we are joined and united together growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. What an immense privilege. And now to you, O God, who strengthens us according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation and the command of the eternal, uncreated, self-existent God, help us to proclaim your truth to both Jew and Gentile alike leading to an obedience of faith, salvation, to the praise and honor of the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen.